Welcome everyone. This is Carlos from SeedCamp. Uh, today we're going to focus on sales and partnerships. Uh, and with us we have one of our amazing mentors who's a guru at this, uh, Daniel King. Uh, I'll let him explain what he does currently. But what we want to try to do is cover some of the areas that early stage founders struggle with when building out sales organizations, sales pipelines, hiring, all that kind of stuff. And Daniel has an interesting background and a story that has allowed him to, to, to give some great advice to the companies he's worked with, uh, including seed camp companies. Uh, so let's start, Daniel, let, let's start off with what, how we usually start off with is trying to understand kind of where, where this genius came from. Uh, what, what were you doing in college and, and, and what sort of what came after that? Okay. Hi, everyone. Hi, Carlos. Um, so uh, I did, you know, basic business degree. Um, wasn't really inclined to anything kind of, you know, technology focused, you know, computers didn't really have any, any aptitude, you know, towards anything, you know, around sort of, you know, development or coding or anything. Typical business degree. And at the end, you kind of you come out and you kind of think, well, OK, so what am I going to do with this now um, and how am I going to apply it? Um, I was actually based in Israel at the time um, and I was offered a job as a branch store manager for probably what is the Israeli equivalent of IKEA and it was heading up basically a very big department store that was actually I was in the process of actually you know building it out and I had to project manage it, manage the whole inception of the actual branch. Um, had about three departments and about 40-45 people um, and I basically ran that. Um, I ran that for about three or four years um, and it was fairly successful. Um, I then moved into a deputy marketing director role um, with that company and it was probably in that particular stage or just towards the end of the kind of the branch manager stage that I did get kind of more and more involved in um, in sort of technology. So we're now we're talking around, you know, 96, 97, um, you know, internet was still very much in its infancy. Um, you know, it was still, you know, Alta Vista browsers and, and Netscape and all that kind of stuff for those people who remember it. Um, so I was at the time using a, a server called AS400s, which was, um, which was a kind of the retail servers at the time um, that did a lot of the kind of, you know, stock rec reconciliation and, and, and account management and uh, accounts management and stuff like that. When I moved into the deputy marketing director role, we started looking more into things around intranets and we had a kind of a corporate intranet. Um, and we started kind of building that out. And I, it really from that stage, I started taking a little bit more of an understanding to it because I kind of understood um, the role that technology plays in business as opposed to just technology, like, you know, kind of real back-end kind of, you know, data center stuff, which um, I didn't really sort of gravitate to. So, um, so I started getting sort of more and more into that whole kind of side of things. We started looking at, you know, retail systems and POS systems, point-of-sale systems, um, and I got much more kind of involved in it um, from, from, from really from, from those kind of early days of sort of running a retail store. Okay. And, and at, the, at the peak at that store, how many people did you have uh, working for you? Um, at the peak, we probably had over holiday time, probably around 50, 55 people. Um, and it was a big outlet, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, a habitat-sized outlet, you know, several floors, um, stuff like that. And so what was the sort of, how long were you there for? Um, I was with the company for about six years. Um, I was the branch manager for about four, and I was deputy marketing director for about, I think, two or three. Yeah, and when, when you went through that um, experience of not only um, starting effectively somewhere maybe towards the bottom, but mm -hmm. working your way through and then including some of these technologies in it, what was like the major outcome uh, at, by the time you left? Like, how, how much were you able to affect change in that organization? Um, a fair bit. Um, it was interesting, you know, when as an Englishman kind of based abroad where, where English isn't the kind of the mother tongue and everything then that was to do with, you know, technology was all in English. I had a little bit more of an advantage just because it was my natural tongue. So people would ask me a whole bunch of things around, you know, how do you use this and what's the instructions? Just just by default, I could explain it to them, even though I actually knew nothing about anything. Um, so that was that, that was kind of interesting. Um, the whole the whole kind of, you know, the whole, um, you know, things around, you know, web development, intranets and, and sort of corporate um, company websites, um, that kind of fascinated me because I've always liked kind of marketing and I just sort of thought that was kind of a whole new area that you could kind of look at and use for marketing. Um, again, hard to believe, you know, it's, it's not such a long time ago, but it feels like a long time ago, but, you know, people didn't really understand what a website w w was there for. They just kind of thought it was like, you know, this corporate brochure, didn't realize you still have to kind of like drive traffic to it. And this is like pre-Google, this is like pre-everything. So you got everybody on board to, onto, sort of onto that. And then did you... Um, 
did you end up having uh, effectively like the first version of what is now, I guess, pretty common e-commerce uh, strategy? Did, did you establish that in your um, I didn't, didn't establish it and we didn't do, um, well, we didn't really do e-commerce as it's known today. So there wasn't a web channel at that time through mm-hmm. e-commerce, um, but we did kind of commerce in the sense that, you know, you could order, um, you know, you'd order through the shop um, or, or order over the phone and then the order would get sent electronically through to the logistics department, which was another area with a huge kind of warehouse facility. And then that would kind of get sent out. It sounds quite basic, but, um, but, but that's in, kind of in, what we did. In that rudimentary version of it, did you at, at that point already start having some form of quantification of sales, its cost of acquisition of these different channels, or was it not there yet? No, it wasn't there yet. So you had no... No, no idea whatsoever. Okay. So it was entirely yeah. on faith alone that yeah. these actions had any Correct. Yeah. So what happened after that? What, what, when you left that... What um, so so actually, it ended up actually coming back to the UK. Um, so this is um, 1999. Um, I came back to the UK. I had a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine, who was an analyst with um, a company called Metagroup, which was actually um, acquired by Gartner. Um, back in uh, 2003, um, and basically, Metagroup was another version of Gartner. It was the direct competitor of Gartner. It was you know technology research and consultancy. Um, and basically, my friend had just finished his three-year stint in Israel as an analyst, actually, with in the sort of the server area. Um, he was coming back to England, and he said, "Listen, you would like to come back to England? We're actually looking for salespeople." Who have actually had you know hands-on experience of actually working with you know systems, and I headed up the kind of the retail practice within MetaGroup um, of actually implementation, actually using it. So you're not just theoretically kind of you know you know talking about stuff, but you've actually used it on the both on the user side, but then can actually use your insights um, and the research that MetaGroup was kind of churning out um, to help retailers. And so I kind of owned the retail practice in within MetaGroup, um, and basically what we were selling was you know um, you know short-term consultancy projects around picking implementation of, of software um, and, um, and sort of technology research. Um, and we had kind of big user groups of, you know, the, some of the biggest companies here in the UK, you know, IT directors, CIOs and all those kind of people that we kind of get together for kind of a meeting of minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was with, them, uh, was, was with them for about three years until it was kind of the writing was on the wall that they were going to get acquired by, um, by Gartner kind of mid-2003. Mm-hmm. And Gartner, Gartner actually bought them just to get rid of a competitor. They actually didn't really need all the whole infrastructure of the company. It was just yeah. a pure acquisition. Just to and during that process, out. you started honing in on, on that sales that, that sales process. What, what were the key skills that you picked up during that period? Um, so, I mean, so that was very much a consultancy sale. Um, and, you know, very early on, when you're dealing with consultancy sales and not a product sale, you have to learn very, very quickly to sell the value proposition. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you're selling something which is actually quite intangible um, because, you know, there's nothing really physical. You're not selling like a pen. You're selling research at the end of the day. It's, you know, in someone else's brilliant mind and someone else's, you know, analysis um, that you're actually selling. Um, so you have to sell the value proposition before you actually sell the product. And I think actually that's probably held me in good stead, you know, for a lot of the companies that I've worked with afterwards, which have been, you know, data-centric type of companies, SaaS sort of companies, um, insights-based uh, um, sort of companies, and that kind of, that's, that's probably been a good, a good learning curve for myself, actually, how do you actually sell a proposition, which is sometimes quite intangible, how do you sell the value and, and not the actual, not the physical product. Mm. And any, any advice for anybody who is in that circumstance right now, like what, what, what was like the key thing that you realized worked, other than obviously selling the, the, the value prop, but like what, yeah. What would be like the biggest learning that you had in, in, in what would close a deal? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, sales in, in, I think sales in its rawest form, I think can be divided into two things. One is, you know, what impact does the product that you're selling have on the actual company that you're selling it into? And I think just as equally important is what impact does the product that you're selling have on the individual that you're actually selling it to? And, you know, a lot of people are personally motivated when they're buying a product and it's actually, how does it make them look good? How does it advance their career? How are they then perceived in an organization as well as buying for the organization? And it's actually, you know, in my experience, there's actually very few people that, you know, could really say, you know, they're buying this solely for the organization, being quite agnostic and saying it's actually not for any ulterior motive. Um, But you have to balance those kind of two sides up and really understand, you know, understand your audience and who you're selling it to. Um, to really understand the mindset of the person that you actually that is actually in the buying mode. Mm. So, so understanding the mindset. So, what happened after after that? What happened after you left that role? 
Um, so that was probably my my tipping point, my, my kind of my pivot. Um, so I left uh, I left Meta Group sort of you know early two thousand and three. Um, it was also based out in uh, Fleet in Hampshire. And as people who don't know, it's about two hours, um, about a two hour drive outside of London. Um, I just had my first son, uh, and I was spending you know four hours on the road. And I thought you know I need to find something a little bit nearer home. And I live in North London, so. Um, so uh, I went for a couple of interviews, knowing that you know Metagroup was going to get bought by Gartner. Um, I went for an interview with a very small startup. There were nine people in the startup, and it was called Hitwise. Um, met with the uh, the guys who were, were the founders, um, some Australian guys, and they'd literally just opened up um, the UK office, which was the, the the first kind of office outside of the the Melbourne office in Australia. Sat with these guys, really hit it off with them. Thought the product was great. Um, thought the guys were great um, and I always remember when we were talking about you know how big's the company and what's the growth plans and I always remember that the kind of the, the then the managing director who sort of said you know touch wood we're going to do about a million a million pounds this year in total revenue for the entire company and I just come from a very big big you know big American corporate with global offices in like sort of 40 countries my, my personal target as a salesperson was like two and a half million and they're telling me like the whole company was going to hit a million I remember going, going home to my wife and sort of saying, like the company, but you know, it seems really, really small. I'm not sure that this is kind of for me. I said, but I really like the guys and I really like the product. I said, and so my wife said, you know, let's take it and see, see what happens. And you know, looking back, that was probably one of the best moves that, that I made. Um, you know, Hitwise then, the only competing product to it was, um, was Comscore. Uh, we were much more nimbler than Comscore. We had more um, more timely data, whereas Comscore was reporting, you know, on a monthly basis. We were reporting on a daily basis. Um, and again, for people who don't know, Hitwise is sort of you know web analytics, um, not only about you know how you're performing as a website, but also looking at in context of how your your competitors are performing. You know, how, what what sort of traffic numbers are they getting? Uh, what sites were they on before? What sites were they on afterwards? Search terms that people were clicking on and going to websites, all that kind of stuff around kind of. Um, you know, web marketing and, 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 um, and web performance. Um, so I started off in a senior sales role with them. Um, and, you know, the company, if I can, you know, put it in some of, you know, modest terms, it went absolutely ballistic. You know, we were hiring people left, right and center. We were doing deals left, right and center. Um, it was kind of flavor of the month for a number of years. And we just kind of rode that. We rode that wave. And, you know, I got promoted, you know, several times. Um, throughout the course of the company, eventually to um, you know EMEA uh, managing director, um, and then in 2007 we were acquired by Experian, um, who took us under their kind of digital marketing services um, arm, uh, and it was a 250 million pound acquisition, huge acquisition back then, um, and I stayed on with the company for about two years um, as EMEA marketing uh, EMEA managing director. Um, and then I spent two years kind of integrating the company into kind of the big, um, sort of big, sort of cumbersome beast that, that Experian is. Um, and again, again, you know, phenomenal learning curve. You know, I was there at Capewise, you know, for you know, seven years. Um, and just the whole learning around, you know, how do you, how do you sell, um, you know, constantly? How do you manage those sales? Again, we were, we were working on a kind of a SaaS recurring revenue model. So how do you also retain? So you're selling, you're retaining. You're also developing products to enhance the actual product service and, and you know, lift up your, your average selling price. Um, you know, structuring teams around you know, marketing, PR, product development, sales, sales operations, um, and then also then working you know, within um, a global organization. You know, so how does the UK liaise with the US? How does the US liaise with Australia? And all those kind of things that you have when you're kind of dealing um, cross, um, cross country. Um, phenomenal learning curve, you know, absolutely brilliant. You know, at, at the height, you know, we were just under 50 people in the UK doing about 25 million a year. Um, and it was, just, it was just a really, really good experience of, you know, how to structure, how to scale, and how to kind of keep focused when uh, actually it was, you know, it was a pretty, pretty steep uh, trajectory curve that we were on. And how many people, at the, towards the end of it, how many people were you working uh, with or underneath you in terms of the, the sales organization? So the sales department in the UK was around um, was around fifteen, around 15, 15 guys. And again, we had to structure that into sort of into sort of teams, um, place a sales director who then had sort of management of the sales teams and stuff like that. I mean, we were we were a very very sales focused organisation. 
um, and we kind of lived and by and lived and died, you know, through through our numbers. I mean, it really was. It was very very focused on sales, and we you know we knew and could forecast, you know, very very well. You know, I've been in other companies since, and you know, it's um, we were quite sophisticated. We knew exactly what the average selling price was. We knew exactly how many deals a salesman um, needed to hit in a month. We knew what the benchmark should be. Um, we knew what the average um, sales cycle could be. I mean, we had all the metrics, so we knew when a, when when a sales guy wasn't performing. Um, you know, according to our kind of benchmark criteria, we gave them a couple of months and then we said, you know, we called it broom them and groom them, groom them or groom them. You know, we had to, we had to get rid of them quickly. Um, and again, that's also, that's also, an, a, a, it sounds quite cold, um, but it's also, it's also a learning element. I mean, you know, sales, unfortunately, you know, sales guys you know, live and die by their sales. And if they're not performing, they are a, a big cost to you as a, as a company. And if they're not performing and if they're not, you know, paying back what their cost is to the company, you know, I think we had it back like threefold. So, you know, each sales guy had to bring in triple um, in contract values to be able to, you know, support their actual, what we were paying them in the salary wise. Um, and if they weren't working out, for, you know, for three months, that was, that was kind of the, the, the longest we'd give someone three months without any kind of sales, then we'd have to, we had to kind of let them go. Mm. So let's start from the, the beginning of that growth, right? Because like you've just kind of dropped this massive like uh, uh, a story uh, on the audience and, and mm -hmm. it's probably it's like when you get given a box of Legos you can build just anything with that and let's start for the, the beginning of it then mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the instruction manual if you will to build this kind of organ sales organization so yeah. to a young founder who is aware of the fact that their growth is going to come from eventually having that kind of sales organization for it to scale yeah. what's the first thing that you, you would say um, so you have to understand, I think, you know, you have to understand your product um, and you have to understand how to sell your product, um, you know, conceptually, elevator pitch, you know, and all the facets kind of around actually, how do you, how do you actually sell a particular product? Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, we didn't have, and it's, we're only talking, you know, less than just, you know, just under 10 years, nine years ago, we didn't have, you know, structures around, you know, mentorship and, you know, and, and places like Seedcamp where people can kind of get information or best practice from other people. Um, so you'd, we'd read kind of, you know, the kind of the classic sales kind of training books. Um, we'd get some outside consultants to kind of help us with, you know, sales processes and, and, and things like that. Um, but you really, you really got to kind of, you got to kind of understand what it is that you're selling and how to kind of convey that in a very, very simple format. Um, and, you know, the simple format, and, and you know, it's, it's been kind of done to death, but I, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how hard it is to make something, some, something simple. There was a great quote I read just a couple of weeks ago where some guy was asked, you know, to, to send in a presentation on something. Um, and, and, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. I, I only managed to do a 32, 32 slide PowerPoint. I didn't have time to make it more concise. And it's just a great way because, I mean, it really is. It, it's so much harder to make something more concise. But, you know, the person you're selling to is strapped for time. He, you know, he's given you, you know, probably no more than an hour to, at best, you know, you know, to pitch your product. And in that time, you've got to build a rapport. You've got to get him on, on your side. You've got to position your particular product. You've got to, in some cases, you know, even negotiate price in that particular meeting. And you've got to kind of get everything in that kind of really sort of, sort of small window and leave with some sort of credibility and some sort of follow-up that there's going to be some, some ne something next that's going to happen. Okay, um, so if, if I pause you there and, and I kind of break that uh, suggestion into two parts. Uh -huh. One part is the, the construction of the, sim the simple statement, the, the simple value prop to this person. But the second part of it is um, the process of understanding that person, uh -huh. right? And... Um, for B2C, it's a little bit more obvious because, you know, the, the person will know if they're the customer or yeah. not. But for enterprise sales, yeah. what's, your, what's your suggestion in terms of early founder thinking around how to get to the right person, how to know when you're at the right person, yeah. how to start thinking about the multiple groups of people they might have to talk to in order to get to that sale? How, how did you manage that? Once you, you yeah. distilled it down to the simple form, how did yeah. you deal with that early on? So, so the best salesman that I've kind of worked with and, and observed have been the ones that can kind of go into a, a, a particular meeting, um, totally put the person that they're selling to at complete ease, find some sort of common ground, which is not related to your particular company or product, where, you know, football's a great one, you know, weather, whatever, holidays. Um, and they build that literally in the first five minutes, they've already established the relationship. They're already kind of going out for a beer, even before they've even started the pitch. And the best salesmen that I know are the ones that can really do that. You know, they'll throw in a joke. They really, they really kind of get down. And then, you know, at the end, 
they'll start talking a little bit about the product, having talked about, you know, families and marriage and this and where you're living and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think what happens, a lot of people, um, and a lot of people who are, you know, maybe inexperienced in sales, feel that they have to launch into the sales pitch from day one, or sorry, from the, sorry, from the first minute. So, you know, they sit down, hi, how are you doing? Exchange business cards, and it's like, whoa, and this is what we do, and this is how much it's going to cost, and this yeah. is the length of the contract, and the guy's like, whoa, hold on, hold on a yeah. second. You, you kind of overawe them. You really got to do that whole kind of bond and report, um, report piece. But, all right, so let's, let's dig deeper into that whole relationship thing, because I think uh, a lot of founders are afraid of sales because mm -hmm. you have this negative association with the smarmy sort of like, hey, tell me about football, tell yeah. me about your family, how's your wife? And, yep. and it sounds like... Sounds cheesy. Oh, it sounds cheesy. <laughs> and there's this great book for you, those that are listening. It's called To Sell is Human. Yep. And, and it talks a little bit about sort of that more relational. But how do you make that balance? How do you keep that honesty and, and, and uh, legitimacy to yep. that conversation without it devolving into like, I have a script. Yep. I'm going to pretend to be nice and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, in my selling career, sort of round about 2004, 2005, um, I came across a sales methodology, which is, which is a well-known sales methodology, which is called Sandler, Sandler's sales, sales Methodology. It's a US methodology, which is now, I think, fairly established for consultative selling. And basically what, what Sandler says is, is kind of, to your point, you know, about, you know, that sales is actually human. Um, what Sandler basically says is that, you know, I'm here, I'm here to sell you a product. You're here to buy a particular product. If this doesn't meet your needs and if I don't meet your needs, then you know, we can just part, be part, you know, part company and shake hands and, 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 and we never see each other again. Um, and they kind of keep that honesty and, you know, without kind of, you know, it's a very long methodology to do the whole kind of course, but you know, the, the key points are around things around, you know, what they call kind of probing questions, but without the guy feeling like he's being interrogated. And there's all sorts of ways that you can do that um, and weave them into your conversation. Again, and the best sales guys, you know, weave it in. You don't even know you've been kind of like Sandland um, because it's just it's just part of their part of their patter. It's just part of their pitch. But it is about, you know, saying things like, you know, um, you know, and if you didn't have a solution like this, what would be the impact on your organization? And you're getting the kind of the positive things from the person. You're getting the buying signals. Um, you're asking about budgets, and again, when you talk about money, that can be a, that can be a quite a tricky one, especially for people who aren't experienced in sales. Anything around you know money negotiations and things like that is quite is quite a tricky one. But you know, Sandler does it in a way that it kind of he couches everything in kind of in kind of soft tones. So you know, if anyone um, who's listening to this, you know, definitely worth you know just going onto Google and typing in you know Sandler sales methodology and just kind of look for like maybe the one page of just kind of the key points because it's, it's a great checklist. Um, to make sure you've kind of you've been through when you're when you're doing that kind of that set that sales pitch. Okay, so like if if we move now to you've established a relationship, you're in discussions, um, you've presented a simple and clear value proposition to them, mm -hmm. and let's say you've understood the, the 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 dynamic with this one individual. How do you then incorporate? Uh, or enable them to incorporate other parties that might be involved. So uh, Michael uh, J. Scott has a term he calls the decision-making unit, mm -hmm. and it's the group of people that jointly make that decision. Yeah. How do you start fishing for who else needs to be involved for you to make that sale? Yeah. Um, so again, you have to kind of, through your probing questions, sort of ask, you know, A, is the person the budget holder? Who else do they need to involve in the decision-making process? Um, and again, what you'll find out for those people who, who haven't really done a huge amount of selling, but, you know, people, a lot of people think, that, you know, information and knowledge is power. And sometimes you'll be spending a huge amount of time pitching to someone um, who actually doesn't have a the buying authority, doesn't have the budget authority, but he's kind of keeping that. He's kind of keeping that relationship with you and actually not letting you see anyone, anyone else in the organization. And so part of your role is to actually uncover who else needs to be involved um, you know, legal is a classic one because, you know, if there is a contract that needs to be signed and the person who you're sitting opposite isn't, you know, a legal person, then you can say, you know what, while we're discussing the terms and the conditions and the, and the, the value and everything and maybe doing, you know, a proof of concept or a trial, maybe we should have your legal department just have, have a quick look at the contract in, pa in parallel, which will then expedite the time that will take for us to get this on board. So there's ways of kind of, you know, channeling that without the person feeling like, you know, you're kind of leap, you're leapfrogging him. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's pretend that that whole transaction 
for an early stage founder has not been complete. Mm -hmm. Like they followed uh, some of the, the advice, they probably got it wrong a few times, but eventually they, they kind of figured out this decision-making union, I need to talk to learning to talk this and talk to that. This is value prop, it's very simple. Now we're moving into institutionalizing that within the startup, right? So the founders have now ceased to do it themselves. They're not gonna hire their first person what is it that they should be looking for in that first person? Shouldn't they be hiring uh, a junior person who they can then manage and then push on them everything they, they just learned? Yeah. Should they be hiring a senior person and they basically check out and they assume that that person's going to do how, how do they think about that first critical hire? Yeah, yeah. Who should it be? Great point because that, that really, it's, it's, a, it's a monumental um, you know, mind shift um, you know, in the growth of the company and in the, growth and, and in the, kind of in the founders. Um, so there's two things. So one is you know, just a pure cost. Um, rationale, you know, can you afford a really seasoned salesperson, you know, sales director, you know, from the UK in, in a decent company who's hitting targets, you know, you're looking at anywhere from like, you know, 70,000 to 120,000 pounds, you know, basic without any commission. Um, can you first of all afford that? So that, that's the first thing. Um, the second thing, you know, is actually something that, you know, we always looked at hiring just smart people. You know, I think you need someone who's had some experience in sales, but I think what we've already tried, always tried to look for is just hire smart, hire smart people, people who can kind of connect the dots. Um, and that's actually been quite a good, um, a good thing to, to kind of to use because, you know, smart people do, will get it. If they don't get it from day one, they're smart enough that it will just take them a little bit more time and then they will get it. So that, that's been a good one. Um, I guess the other thing is also then, you know, looking at the type of product that you have um, and thinking of who, who actually is going to be your end, end client. So, you know, if you're, if you're, a, you're a, you know, a company that's selling, you know, a fairly big, um, big ticket, um, you know, ERP type of sort of software platform that's going to encompass many different departments, you know, sending in, you know, some sort of spotty teenager isn't going to probably do it. You need someone with a bit more gravitas um, and someone who's maybe from the industry that will have that sort of credibility. So I guess it depends on what your product is. Um, and I guess it depends on, on how you, also you, want to, you want to present the company. The, the big thing, and, and I think the biggest fear factor from a founder perspective is actually, you know, after, you know, the initial training is that you've actually got someone going in and kind of, you know, representing your baby without you being there. And you actually don't always know what they're going to be saying. And it's your reputation. It's your company that you've built up off, you know, your blood, sweat and tears. And someone else is now representing you. Um, and you want to make sure they do that in the best possible way. Okay, so that, that person, you've given a series of sort of really interesting um, trade-offs, right? Like uh, for certain kinds of products, you might have to bring in that person. And for other other kinds of products, it might be that spotty teenager. Yeah. So what, what, um, what have you seen works best for an early stage company, pre-product market fit in terms of... Um, in terms of like um, when, when you bring uh, a new person in who you then maybe need to have be the leader of future salespeople, mm -hmm. or is that person an interim person, mm -hmm. or do you, because you're investing all that know-how that you did manually as a founder, yeah. you're investing that into that first individual, and the question is whether or not you see that individual as somebody who's then going to become the leader mm -hmm. for the future sales organization or as an interim one and you're still having that role of having to train up subsequent ones. So how do you start yep. building out that, that, that sales process? Yeah, great point. So, you know, in sales, the, 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 the cost or lack of opportunity by having someone being trained up only to find that they haven't sold your product and then have to fire them and go through the firing process and then to hire someone again, you know, minimum, you're talking six months at a, at a minimum. And that, that cost or of, um, of lack of sales over that six months can be actually, you know, detrimental to the entire health of the business. So you really want to make sure that those first initial hires are the ones that are going to be key. Um, we always tended to hire, you know, even above our, our, what the actual role was. So, you know, although, you know, if I look back at some of the startups that I worked at, we tried to make sure that we, we would pay them the same amount of money as if they were working kind of in a big corporate, even though they were working in a smart in a, in a smaller smaller startup to make sure we had the right person. And then that person could then backfill all the other salesmen and build out the team around him. And it, and it is really important. Um, you know, sales, sales guys, for people who haven't kind of worked with them, are a... Um, you know, they're a different breed of, of people to the rest of us. You know, they're very resilient. Um, you know, they take negative comments. It, it, it kind of does, it doesn't stick. It all washes off the, 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 the sort of their backs. I mean, they are, they are, they're used to being rejected. 
Um, and you have to know, and you have to know really kind of what motivates them. Typically, what motivates them is um, is money. You know, they're, they're looking at you know a base salary and then a pretty hefty bonus structure um, for successful sales, and that's typically what motivates them. So the more you can kind of motivate them um, and put all sorts of different sort of comp plans in and stretch targets and all those kind of things, then the better they, they seem to perform. But you know, definitely hire ahead if you can, if you can afford it. It's definitely worth hiring ahead and then letting that person kind of then build out a team underneath them. Okay, and so maybe we take a little bit of a, a detour and talk about compensation. Like you mentioned a, a few numbers earlier about the, what's typical, but how do you normally set up a compensation structure for an early day sales organization, yeah. especially when you don't have that much money and maybe you're at seed stage where you've yeah. maybe raised anywhere between 500 to 1.5 million yeah. or thereabouts, and you're trying to figure out like how to make that money go. Correct. So, so the, the first, the first, you know, the first year of your sales is, is very tricky because, you know. It's market dynamics which sometimes you know um, give you your actual selling price, and rather than you putting out your selling price, yeah. you put out a selling price and you kind of hit and miss, and people aren't buying it, so you lower it a bit, and then you kind of see what sticks. So it's very hard to actually come up with a sort of what is what is my sales price, how long should things be taking, um, and how many sales should I be you know closing in a month or in a, or in a quarter. Very very tricky, um, you know. Good salespeople will be good set, good at sales, and therefore they can build up that kind of data in the first kind of year. But I have to be honest, you know, the first year is is a lot of hit and miss, a lot of trial and error, and actually, you know, are we selling this right? Are we selling the product right? Do we even have the right product? Is the product the right fit? You're tweaking the product because it's based on the client feedback, and it's uh, it's uh, the first year is tricky. It's a hard one. It's a hard one, but so does that, because it's so hard, does that mean that you should? focus on compensating those early salespeople more with equity or more with a bonus structure? Or yeah, I mean, a combination, a combination of all of that. I mean, you, you want basically you want everyone to be aligned. So, you know, if the sales guy, as well as his bonus structure and his, and his kind of basic salary is, is, you know, compensated on, you know, creating value within his share options, then you're all aligned on creating company value. And that's a great way of doing it. You know, people will stay on board, um, you know, trying to build company value into that. Um, it's interesting because people now are much smarter than you know ten years ago, where you could say you know here's here's a, here's a, you know a certificate of fifty thousand shares, and they'd be like oh that's great thanks. Now they're sort of saying well actually you know what does the fifty thousand shares equate to as a percentage of the whole company? Um, they're being a little bit smarter actually of, uh, of of how they're negotiating. But yeah, definitely if everyone's aligned on trying to build company value, then that should it should reduce some of those issues. Yeah. So one of the things that I've uh, that I've read is a, is a, a sort of evolved thinking view on motivating salespeople is you paying them as if they were salary employees, not a lower depressed uh, starting salary with a huge bonus upside, Correct. but rather everyone pretty much the same. And the, the theory Correct. being that, the, that you're not trying to motivate through a, a carrot rather than relying on that person's uh, intrinsic motivations. Correct. Um, I, I, I wholeheartedly support that. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing I would put in is you know, I think they should have the same basic salary. But what we found was actually really good is that, you know, the incentivization element of their of their compensation plan, um, you know, if they really did work hard and really hit their numbers, that they, they, they could take home huge. You know, I, I was a managing director of Europe and there were several times where I signed over checks, you know, to sales guys who'd smash their numbers, which were, you know, double my salary. I had no problem with doing that because it's great for the company. Um, but, you know, they were being incentivized in all the right, all, in all the right areas and also that then drives the performance of the other team people. The other thing is, which I, I guess is just something really interesting, um, and I found this actually, you know, through through learning the hard way. So, you know, we'd come to the end of a quarter, and we'd need people to put like, you know, a really big push at the, on that last quarter to hit that kind of the, the yearly target or the quarterly target. So we throw out kind of additional bonuses. What we actually found is when we said to the sales guys, you know, um, you know, if you hit your particular performance targets this uh, this quarter you'll get you know, an additional two or 3,000 pounds. That's a lot of money just for that. And we found, okay, so they, they rose to it in most of the cases, but didn't kill it. But you know, if I went out and I bought a 1,000 pound watch, and I said, whoever hits this particular number gets a 1,000 pound watch, they would be all over this. And actually the tangible, the actual thing of you know, or going away for a weekend, or you know, we'd, we'd send them off to you know, Silverstone, they do like a couple of laps in a Ferrari, they would have, they were the third of the price and they would actually have a bigger impact on the sales team, on their performance than actually cash, which is, which is really funny. So we did a lot of kind of 
kind of bonuses around, you know, going out and, and you know, flashy cars and watches and holidays and all that kind of stuff. And that was the best for us. And it was, it, was a, and it saved us a lot of money. Although, arguably, you could say that the culture matters, right? Like, sure. I think that yeah, yeah. The, the, the each country's, each company's going to have a different culture. But if, Absolutely. We, if we keep down that path of, of sort yeah. of, of compensation... Um, Can I just say one more thing? The, the other thing is, you know, a, a lot of... Um, you know, early stage companies um, and CEOs who have maybe initially been involved in the sales process, but then they actually bring in a salesperson. They then take a back seat and they carry on with, you know, product development and the overall kind of company strategy. The CEO, um, in my mind, should never, ever take his finger off the pulse of the sales. The sales is the, is the heartbeat of the organization and the CEO should never be that removed from it. So he needs to know those numbers. He needs to know the performance. He needs to sit down with the sales guy, you know, every week on a minimum, find out exactly what's going on, run through a pipeline of exactly what's going on. He can never, never take a step away from it. It's really important. A lot of people actually, you know, negate that thing. They've almost like, you know, they've outsourced that sales operation. They don't need to be involved in it anymore. Actually, they need to be involved in it just as much, but just kind of in a different way. Mm. And how do you prevent um, fraudulent sales? I mean, I'm not talking about like, um, you know, the most obvious stuff. Sometimes it can be a lot more... Uh, about how you set up a long-term relationship mm-hmm. uh, with the, with the end customer, so that it's not self-serving for the salesman. How how do you think through that as a as a as a founder? Um, so you, so you just say that again. So you mean the, the longevity of, of the sales cycle? Yeah, because I mean, to some extent, you know, there's there's these case studies of where uh, salespeople would would sell a contract that was effectively going to return uh, the customer was going he knew he was going to return, but by hitting his numbers. Yeah. Um, he would he would not deal with the return cycle. Yeah. So aligning aligning sales so that you, there aren't loopholes. Yeah. And then of course setting up compensation structures so there aren't loopholes. How how did you yeah, get yeah. through that so that people wouldn't be canceling stuff or wouldn't be fraudulently selling yeah. licenses that then there was a 30 minute, thirty day money back guarantee. Yeah, yeah. We lost that so, so we, we did do some of that and you're right, you know, sales guys will, you know, they'll sell it in the easiest way and the cheapest way just to kind of hit a number. Um, but we did, you know, we had a clawback mechanism whereby, you know, if, if, a, if a client, you know, cancelled their contract, we would claw back the money from the sales guy and the sales guy would have to pay up exactly the compensation that he received for it. Um, the other thing that we introduced was actually doing multi-year, multi-year deals uh, and multi-year deals with, without a breakout clause are a great way, A, of keeping the client and retaining the client and also getting a higher initial contract value. So we incentivized our sales guys to go after, you know, like, you know, two, three-year contract deals. Occasionally, you'd have to put in or the, 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 the client's legal team would put in you know, a breakout clause at the end of year one or year two. But if you could kind of just do an automatic rollover of the actual contract, we incentivized them um, around that. And then the last bit that we did, just to make sure that we were selling to the right people, is we actually gave the sales guy a very small kicker on the second year renewal, even though it wasn't actually being managed by the sales guy. So, you know, the sales guy would sell it in, they would then get handed over to a client management team or account management team. They would support that particular account and look at renewing it. Now, if we sold that in well, um, then actually if the client continued... Um, after the after the initial year, then we'd give like you know one one and a half percent back to the sales guy for selling it in properly. So incentivizing long term. Correct. Sales. Yeah. That's correct. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So for those of you listening, you know, keep that in mind. So now that you've created, so we talked a little bit about compensation. We talked about hiring the initial person, mm-hmm. um, setting goals, right? Like I think one of the things that people who aren't familiar with with uh, sales might not have heard the term the sales pipeline, mm-hmm. but building out the process yeah. of sales, like. Maybe you can go into how, once you've hired that new person, how do you create a sales pipeline? What does that mean? Yep. What does that mean in terms of bookings versus revenue? What does, yeah, yeah. decipher that for us? Yeah, so, so sales basically, so you want to be, be capturing data and information on everything that you're doing in a sales environment. And by that I mean you want to be capturing data on how much you're selling your product for. You want to be capturing data on how long it's taking from when you know, instigate the initial relationship to the actual, to the actual close of the contract. You want to be measuring that. Um, and you want to be measuring also the volume of deals that a salesperson or the, you know, their, their capacity to actually sell either within a month or within a quarter. And as soon as you can, ha- can get your hands on that kind of data and you can kind of churn that data out and look at it, then you can actually start looking at being a bit more kind of programmatic with um, your sales forecasting and your pipeline. So, you know, in some cases you may only need, you know, four prospects in order to get one deal. In other companies, you know, you'll maybe get one in 10. That'll be kind of your strike rate. And you need to establish really what it is um, and, and kind of your conversion numbers fairly early on to be able to understand, that, you know, how many 
um, you know, how many companies do I have in my hopper? How many companies do I have in my funnel? And out of them, you know, I'm going to get X amount and they're going to, you know, be charged at X amount. And that way you can then work it into your financials and it helps then you can then do your forecasting. You know how much money you're going to be burning because you know how much you're paying for, for, for salaries. Um, you know, your salaries, your fixed costs, your, your other incidentals and, and compensation is coming out of stuff that's coming in. So I'm less worried about that. Um, but you need to look at how, you know, your fixed costs versus actually how many, how much sales you're doing. Um, but you know, typically, typically, you know, two in 10, one in five is a, is kind of a, a standard metric. Um, but what's that mean, two in 10? So two, so two deals out of 10. So you'd speak to 10 companies and you would actually close with a contract two out of them. Okay. So one in five. Um, and some, some months will be a little bit better. Um, and again, you'll get, you'll get peaks. I mean, you know, we call it, you know, the hockey stick effect, but you will always get a peak towards the, either the end of a, end of a financial year or the end of a quarter. And even though you try and like, you know, make it kind of flatten out throughout the course of the year, you'll always get these big peaks and troughs in your, your kind of your sales forecasting, depending on actually when you need the numbers in by. And sales, salespeople will, will nail the numbers according to the date that you put there and they'll hit the bar, the bar that you put there. So you have to always be pushing the salespeople to hit a little bit more. Um, so, you know, if you've got a, you know, if you've got a, an annual target of, let's say a million pounds, make it, make the sales guys think it's a million point two and they'll hit the million point two and they'll try and, otherwise they literally will just hit the bar that they've been given. And how do you manage that pipeline, um, with, uh, easy sort of low hanging fruit versus, uh, high yield, but slow, yeah. slow burns because you could, as a salesman, you could very yeah, well yeah. be like, you just said that if three months you haven't done anything, you're out, you go. Yeah. That, that kind of stinks because yep. if I know that it takes me five months to close this Gillette account and it's going to be millions, but I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get fired. So I'm going to do a whole bunch of little ones, which contract values. Right. How do you align the whole organization yeah. around thinking both short-term and long-term. Yeah, so good salespeople will do this naturally. Good salespeople will do the 80-20 rule by having, you know, 20, you know, 20% high value, long ticket, long, you know, sales um, cycle um, accounts um, supplemented by 80% of stuff which kind of ticks over much quicker. So they'll do it naturally. But, you know, part of the either the sales director or, you know, the founder CEO's role is to actually sit with a sales guy, go through that pipeline and actually bucket it out into, you know, long-term, big ticket, medium length, and then kind of quick kind of quick wins that you can kind of tick over. And you've got to have a good split of all of them um, in order to make up your numbers. You know, you can't just be putting all your all your eggs in one basket and hoping that you know, you've got five deals or five accounts that you're going to be dealing with um, because not all those five are going to come in, even though, you know, each one may be a huge amount of money. It just doesn't work like that. Mm. And then, and so like, you know, we've covered a lot of ground here in terms of how to build out, you know, a team and, and what, what would be the next step? Like what, maybe I'm missing the right question here, but what would be the next logical step that you see in building out that sales organization? Is it like hiring now a manager on top of these people or is it, what is it? Um, so, the, so the next one, which is actually, uh, actually an interesting one and something that I think a lot of companies fall down on is the client servicing element. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, they get that first salesperson and they sell in the service, they don't support it. And actually, you know, a lot of a lot of what we found out, you know, a lot of companies that didn't renew their contracts or cancel their contracts wasn't because they didn't have a need for the actual um, technology solution itself. It was actually because user adoption. They just didn't use it. And there was no one in our company that was helping them to use it. So they bought this thing on. We didn't do enough training. We didn't do enough handholding. We didn't do enough, you know, engagement with them having sold in the contract. So then we spent a huge amount of time, you know, training up an account management team or client services team to be able to take over from the sales guy that really helped the client to implement it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a huge error. And, I, and actually, you know, I can't stress that enough. You know, and again, if I looked at, you know, a good five rolling years of, you know, sales and, and, and servicing and, and client retention, um, you know, we could predictly, quite well, you know, predict, um, you know, there was a third in every year of new business sales versus two thirds of retained accounts. And so the retained accounts portion of the sales element was actually bigger than our new business sales. And actually they became even more important um, to retain them and grow those accounts than actually new business sales. Mm. Um, and that comes out sort of over time, but mm. you know, you don't, don't, um, yeah, don't, don't, don't um, neglect, that. neglect that whole area of, of, say, of servicing an account mm. and servicing the actual, um, the actual person who's using it. Yeah, that's great. And, and to some extent, this bleeds into thinking of things more as partnerships. And I know that the role that you're doing now is more more down the partnership track. Do you want to share a little bit about kind of how that how that's different? Now? Yeah. So, so one of the things that um, that, you know, I found out working with, you know, many different startups 
um, and you know helping startups to sell into um, maybe sometimes you know big companies. Um, a lot of times, big companies just won't buy from a small startup, and that's nothing to do with how good or how bad the product is. It's just they don't just don't feel comfortable buying from a small startup of several people. Um, you know, they don't know if it's going to be around in a year's time. There's maybe funding issues. They haven't got any branding. Haven't got really any presence. They'd rather would buy, you know, an inferior product from a larger player because they just feel that they have more confidence in them than actually buying from a startup. So one of the things that I would definitely advise is actually look for a particular partner that can kind of take you in to a very large corporate. So, you know, Carlos and I, we were on the board of Profiteer, which is a seed cap company. We're going back quite a few years now, actually, since they, since they started. Um, and very, very early on, we established that Nielsen, um, the big, big market research company, would be an excellent partner for them. And so we did everything that we could to try and establish Nielsen as a, as a sales partner for them and would take them into Europe and sell into Europe, you know, where the company that, that we were on board with, you know, Profitero, didn't actually have any sales presence on the ground. Um, and they could leverage Nielsen to actually get them into some of these big retailers and actually sell it at a much bigger ticket value than we could as a little, as, as a little um, startup. Um, and that's been going now for five years and, and that's, it's been working really, really well. You know, we've got some of the biggest supermarkets, some of the biggest retailers, you know, right across Europe off the back of having a partnership with Nielsen. It's interesting because initially it was structured um, 60% to Nielsen, 40% to, to Profiteer and that's completely flipped several years later when actually we're becoming much more um, dominant and actually need us almost more than we need them. And so it's now 60%. Um, the other way around mm. uh, but I can definitely say you know try and look out for those strategic partnerships and actually go in with someone else who values your um, who values your product um, understands your product your, pro your product fits in with their particular products and in integrates well into them and then just try and leverage that and go in and do sort of a joint pitch with them mm. um, we're doing that with several companies you know TV Beat we're doing that with TV Beat um, and some other companies doing it with Profiteer and several mm. other startups and if, and if somebody wants to sort of dig deeper into this topic, uh, what books do you recommend on it? I, I mean, I, I like some of the autobiographies. I mean, it sounds cheesy, but, you know, I read Richard Branson's autobiography and I thought it was phenomenal. Um, and although it doesn't really kind of give, you know, hard sort of, you know, sales methodologies or sort of, you know, startup methodologies, just the kind of getting into that kind of mindset um, is, really, is, is really good. Alan Sugar is another one. Um, and again, it's not that they're... It's not that they're telling you everything you need to know, but you know, if you just pick up sort of like a couple of small nuggets from every single book, then that normally normally seems to work well. Mm. A lot of a lot of stuff is a lot of just trial and error, and a lot of stuff is just you know common sense. Mm. Um, but you know, you've got a great infrastructure here to actually leverage you know a whole mentor network of people who've kind of been through all those pains and can kind of impart those kind of pearls of wisdom. Yeah. Um, and I definitely would encourage people to kind of to leverage that. And and if you could go back, let's say in the past, and and give your early early Daniel uh, at career advice, what would be the number one thing you'd, you'd, you'd give him advice on? You know, sales has a dirty kind of connotation. It, I mean, and, and I don't know why, um, because it actually, it's quite a, it's quite a sophisticated, um, it's quite a sophisticated skill at the end of the day. Um, you know, you know when you've been sold to very, very well, and you know when you've been sold to very, very badly. But I think, you know, having a background in sales um, you know, if you look at look at a lot of CEOs, a lot of CEOs, if they're not coming up through the kind of the, the kind of the financial side, they're coming up through the sales and operations and, and sales operations side. So you know, as I said, you know, sales is the life is the lifeblood. It's the beat of an organization, and you know, having that kind of experience and that kind of background, um, you know, served me well. You know, going up into now, you know, looking at sort of bigger and, and sort of um, uh, more complex kind of roles. But it's always grounded me. So, uh, so I think you know, I never ever thought I would end up working in sales. I certainly didn't do a degree, a degree, and also and think about getting into sales. But you know, at the end of the day, it's probably been quite good. Mm. And if and if there's any startups that are listening to this and thinking, "crap, I really want Daniel to be working with me," <laughs> is is are you are you still a gun for hire in, in the sense that they can have you as a mentor? Or yeah, sure. How can they get a hold of you? Uh, sure. Um, you know. I am getting stretched and pulled in all different directions, and I'm working with a lot of different startups at the moment. Um, in fact, uh, one of the companies actually went public about a year and a half ago, and is actually going through a massive acquisition at the moment, which has been in the papers the last couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm keen. I, I think the thing now is that you know I, I'm I can I'm happy to have you know conversations with anyone that wants you know just some tips and stuff like that. But if anyone wants me to be, actually be involved. Then you know it's expensive. I, it's no, no, it's, no, no, not even, not even expensive. But you know, I have to a 
really feel I can add value to the actual company. So yeah. if I look at all the, the, the kind of the companies that I'm in discussion with and working with at the moment, they're all companies that I'm very comfortable with the product and very comfortable with the founders. I can add, you know, a huge amount of value to the, you know, the sales operation, the product operation, leveraging my network of get them getting those people in front of a whole bunch of people. So I'm really a bit more particular about the type of company that I'm working with now, whereas I think in the past it was a bit broader, but now I'm very particular about it. Mm. Okay. Um, well, we'll put we'll put um, your LinkedIn information on the podcast, and people can can try to get in touch that way. That'd be great. Um, so, uh, we always like to finish with a, a shameless plug of anything that you'd like to plug, whether it be your you know your family's uh, photography album or <laughs> kids' baseball team or whatever. So, what 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 would you what comes to mind? A charity of some sort, or well. Um, or somebody you'd like to give thanks to for their mentorship over, over the years? Wow. Um, God, you caught, you caught me out on that one. Um, well, I definitely want to thank you for all the, <laughs> all the help that you've given the Seedcamp companies over the years. So definitely, that's my shameless plug. Thanks. King. Um, I think, you know... What's been interesting, and maybe if we've got just a minute, so I'm actually doing some consultancy for the UK government. I've been working with the UK government for the last sort of two years. Um, I basically interviewed for the um, CEO CEO role for Tech City um, about two and a bit years ago, um, and it was given to Joanna Shields. Um, I got shortlisted for that role, um, and I didn't get that role, it was given to Joanna, but they said to me, you know, we got a new role opening up in government. Um, would you be interested? And I'd never in my life thought about working for government. And it's working for UK trade and investment. So it's a little bit more of a sort of a dy- dynamic department in, within government. And basically what the role is, it's looking at, and I head up, you know, emerging in high growth markets. And it's looking at bringing in foreign owned businesses into the UK um, and plugging them into all the networks and having, and having, having them develop in the UK. Um, so I took on that role. I was given pretty much a blank canvas, travel all over the world, you know, speaking with you know, all sorts of businesses. It's fairly multi-sector, um, but just because of my background, I do focus um, and, you know, we get a lot of, you know, 50% of everything that comes into the UK is some sort of sort of technology um, based um, company. Um, and I think, you know, what I've learned in the last two years, which I've probably been completely blasé about, was actually how great the UK is. And that really sounds like, you know, quite, you know, not what's the what's the word um little england it's kind of a little england kind of approach to it to it but i've become really proud of england and actually what england has you know traveling around the world and being in a lot of kind of developing markets um and just seeing you know all the things that we take for granted you know the access to capital the access to talent um you know freedom of press you know non non-rigged votes i mean and and, and elections just the, the very basic things that we have in the uk it's made me really really proud you know the, the uk has a phenomenal phenomenal ecosystem for companies to succeed and thrive here and we are probably the most multicultural country in the world where you know doesn't matter which country you're coming from and you can walk down the street and no one's going to be looking at you funny or anything um it's made me really really proud to be english and really proud of england so i think that's probably the big takeaway and probably not on a particular person per se it's a bit bigger yeah, than that yeah, but it's, it's certainly made me really proud of this country well it's it's, it's funny I, I don't know if you know this about me but i i as of last year became british and ah, so, yeah, so it's okay. just as much my home as it is yours, and, and definitely I agree with a lot of the, the elements of pride that it, it comes with. Need to so. pipe in the, the national anthem over this when you do the editing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, with that, uh, I'd like to thank you, Daniel, for your time. Uh, it's been amazing, and I think the, the, the founders that are listening to this would really get a lot out of it. Excellent. Thanks, Colin. Um, yeah, so until next time, guys. Bye. Thanks a lot. <laughs>